For decades, Darwinian evolution has reigned as the scientific paradigm explaining the origins of life. But that may all change. A growing number of scientists are exploring and embracing what's being called intelligent design. Our guest today is right in the middle of the controversy. In fact, he's started much of it, and you're about to hear from him. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin. This is a program exploring cultural and spiritual issues from a Christian perspective, emphasizing reason, logic, and evidence. And we have terrific resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Download our past shows on topics like world religions, the cults, and the occult, commentaries on movies and media, debates, and Dr. Zucharin's books and articles. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Today is part two of our interview with Dr. Michael Behe. So, Pat, let's reintroduce him. Yes, thanks, Kevin. Returning with us once again is Dr. Michael Behe. He has a Ph.D. in biochemistry from the University of Pennsylvania, and he's a professor of biological sciences at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. And he's written one of the key books in the Darwinian Evolution Intelligent Design Debate, Darwin's Black Box, which introduced a very significant theory here, Irreducible Complexity. And he's also written a recent book, The Edge of Evolution. So, Dr. Behe, welcome back. Thanks. It's great to be back. Now, Dr. Behe, in your books, you state that Darwin's theory includes several key principles here, natural selection, random mutations, and common descent. However, do these three principles account for the complexity of living organisms that we see today? No, they don't. Uh, a couple of the, of the ideas in Darwin's theory that are, are woven together in Darwin's theory, I, I think, are reasonable ones. But it only takes one of them to be wrong or insufficient, and the, the whole theory kind of crashes down. Now, as you said, there are uh, three parts to Darwin's theory. It's, it's not just one idea. It's that you have random variation in a bunch of organisms, or r random mutation, we would call it today. And then there's natural selection. If, if, one of, if the random variation allows one animal to survive better than the other ones, then in nature it would grow up and get married and, and have a family and uh, the kids would inherit the variation and, and that would pass on through the generations. And then there's common descent. Uh, that is, if that process continued, then maybe the descendants of that original organism would change a tiny bit over long periods of time into, into something completely new. And I argue in Edge of Evolution that common descent is it's what most people think of when they hear the word evolution, that, that creatures that are alive today are descended from different sorts of things in the past. I argue in the book that that's kind of startling and interesting, but, but in a very basic sense, it's, it's trivial because it doesn't say where those creatures in the past came from or how they gave rise to different sorts of creatures in, in the present. And I also argue that Darwin's idea of natural selection, that is, if, if a creature is better suited to its environment, then it will survive better and prosper. That, that's an interesting idea too, but again, not all that surprising. Because, you know, who's going to argue with the idea that a creature that's better suited to its environment is, is going to survive better? You know, it seems pretty plain. And I argue in the book that the big linchpin of Darwin's theory, and furthermore, the, the idea that contains just about all of the controversial philosophical and, and scientific baggage, is the idea that random changes, random mutations in 
organisms can provide the fodder or can provide the enough variation to build what we have discovered to be very complex and elegant and intricate uh, biological machinery. Uh, that, in fact, random changes will tend to break things, uh, and there's uh, there's no real re there's no reason to think that random uh, changes, perhaps directed changes, but not random changes, could provide the the raw material for natural selection uh, to work on. So I argue in the book that, in fact, however life developed, it could not be by random uh, changes, but rather by uh, in perhaps intelligently directed mutations. Yes, I noticed in the book you're quite open about not being concerned with the potential of common ancestry of all creatures, even humans and uh, chimpanzees. Right. And, and some, you know, may have a problem with that. Why is that not a problem with you? Hey, you again. should see some of my relatives. <laughs> I think it's a step up for me to be related to a chimp. <laughs> no, I, I, I jest, but uh, I'm, a, I'm a Roman Catholic, and in the Catholic Church we... It's never been much of a problem with with evolution or even Darwin's theory. I remember learning Darwin's theory in, in parochial schools and being taught that, well, maybe God made life this way. And, and other Christians, like uh, was mentioned in last week's segment, uh, like uh, Francis Collins, the director of the Human Genome Project, and now the director of National Institutes of Health, and a man named Simon Conway Morris, who is a prominent English paleontologist, they... They're uh, Christians, and they think common ancestry is not doesn't violate their religious beliefs. So I have no particular theological reasons to think uh, common descent is not true, and and so it, it you know it, it may or may not be true. If if evidence turned up that it was not true, then you know uh, that would be fine with me too. It's it's just not an area of interest to me. I'm most concerned with the question: Can we tell whether or not? organisms could be produced by random processes uh, or not. And I, I think other questions are relatively uh, a lot less important than that, that basic question. Yeah, you state in your book, The Edge of Evolution, for reasons having little to do with science, this crucial aspect of Darwin's theory, the power of natural selection coupled with random mutation, has been grossly oversold to the modern public. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, it's, it, yeah, it's simply that, that you can see or you can at least look at modern organisms and you can say that, oh, they look related. They've got knee bones and thigh bones all in the same place between, you know, birds and mammals. And so maybe that's evidence of inheritance from a common ancestor. And you can say, look, there's natural selection. And, you know, if something's better than something else, it can survive better. So that's reasonable. But there is no evidence to show that organisms came about by random processes. That's simply an add-on. Uh, it's the word "random" is not really a scientific word. It's it's more of a philosophical word, and Darwin uh, insisted on this, and it really resonated with many many in the scientific community because they thought that they could then explain life without regard to you know, uh, something beyond nature, God or, or uh, a designer beyond nature. And if you look at the evidence for natural selection, it, you know, there's good, excellent evidence that, you know, given an organism that's better 
than another organism or more fit than another organism. It'll survive better in nature. That's easy to show. And it's easy to show that there are similarities between organisms. And, and if you think that is uh, evidence for common descent, then you've got evidence uh, to point to. Uh, but there is uh, virtually no evidence, not even evidence that you can point to, uh, not even evidence that you can interpret uh, in your particular frame to show that all of this happened by some random process. It is all uh, included in the presumptions uh, of the theory. So that's what I mean when I say it's been grossly uh, oversold for non-scientific reasons. There is no actual physical evidence uh, to... Uh, to back up the claim. Now, Dr. Behe, you state in your book that it's highly unlikely that uh, random mutations could cause the kind of macroevolutionary change necessary for Darwin's theory to be true. In fact, uh, uh, you show places where mathematically it's almost uh, impossible because there are limits to which you know yeah. the gene pool can handle these kinds of mutations. Yeah, and actually the information, the, the data that shows that is really relatively new. And, and that's the perhaps the critical part. Uh, you know, even up to about 20 years or so ago, it was easy to imagine in the lack of relevant data that, well, maybe random changes would be able to, to uh, build an eye or, or something. Well, maybe something conferred sight and then it, the kind of a light-sensitive patch could kind of curl up little bit by little bit and, and so on. And, it's easy to imagine uh, things, <laughs> things like that, but it's, it's also easy to imagine Dr. Jekyll turning into Mr. Hyde, too. So uh, our imaginations can see things that, that aren't there. The nice thing about the progress of science is that it's now brought to us evidence where we can evaluate how well random mutation and natural selection works. And in my book, I discuss a couple of cases where it's, it's that evidence uh, has become known in great detail. And in particular, I talk about the changes in the human genome in response to selective pressure by malaria. Now, malaria, as most people know, is, a, is really a horrendous disease which is transmitted by mosquito. And there's this little single-celled organism, the malarial parasite, which gets into a human body by mosquito bite and then essentially goes on to eat the person's blood. It, it, it literally invades people's red blood cells and eats the blood in a person. And it's a killer disease, uh, kills a million people a year. And over the past 10,000 years, it, it turns out that humans have acquired mutations. People in malarious regions of the, of the world have acquired mutations that help give some immunity to malaria. And this has always been pointed to by Darwinists as an example of the power of random mutation and natural selection. And it's certainly an example of it, but uh, now that we know what the mutations are, it, it kind of points to a different conclusion than what the Darwinists say. It turns out that all of the mutations which give resistance to malaria are themselves the breaking of genetic machinery. For example, the best known mutation is the sickle cell mutation. And that turns out to give a little bit of resistance to malaria. But as most people know, if you uh, are unfortunate to have enough to have two genes for sickle cell hemoglobin, one from your mom and one from your dad, then you get sickle cell disease, sickle cell anemia. And that's, of course, very bad in itself. And there are a couple of other uh, mutations which lead to resistance to malaria. One's called thalassemia, in which the gene for making part of hemoglobin is broken. 
and another called glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency. Say that real fast three times. Uh, it turns out that if a mutation breaks the gene for this normally useful component of a cell, uh, glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase, it turns out that confers a little bit of resistance to malaria. And so now we see that, in fact, the mutations, good mutations, helpful mutations, that we can track down are ones which break molecular machinery. But, but clearly that's not how molecular machinery is built. Let me give you an example to, to try to kind of understand this. You know, a lot of people may say, how, how does it help to break something? Well, suppose you had your car and you wanted to make the car more aerodynamically efficient. You wanted to decrease the wind resistance so it could perhaps go faster or get better gas mileage. Well, how could you do that? Well, the easiest way you might do something like that is to break off the side view mirrors, and that will decrease the wind resistance. Of course, now you can't see you know, on the side, but maybe that's not important to you. And so by breaking those off, you can increase, say, the gas mileage of, of your car. Or suppose there was an army that wanted to you know, invade your city, and, and the only route into the city was over a bridge. How could you save your city from the invading army? Well, one way you could do it is to blow up the bridge, and that would be a helpful change. You know, it certainly would help you better than letting the army come across the bridge. And it turns out that literally that's what some of the mutations that help build resistance to malaria do at the molecular scale. Turns out this little single-celled malaria has to grab onto a, a protein that's found in the red blood cell or on the surface of the red blood cell. And one of the mutations that confers resistance throws away that protein, throws away the gene for that protein, so it's no longer there. So it's helpful, otherwise the person would die from malaria, but it is not an example of, of building you know, sophisticated new molecular machinery. Uh, it's an example of destroying that. But we need an explanation for how the machinery got there in the first place. That's fascinating. You know, Dr. Behe, one criticism that we often hear against intelligent design, irreducible complexity, and uh, your book and so forth is uh, something called pareidolia, and that is that uh, human beings have a tendency to impose design or see design in things. For example, Darwinian evolution has endowed us with the ability to, to see a stick in the trail at night and think it's a snake and jump away for survival. And we imposed the design of a snake on uh, a simple stick. What do you think about that criticism, or is it a well, criticism yeah, at all? Yes, uh, uh, yeah, I've heard of that, but I think it's, it's not very forceful. Uh, for example, suppose you're going with a friend and you're, you're walking in the, in the wilderness uh, by some mountains and you didn't know about it, but it turns out your path takes you by Mount Rushmore, and you look up at the faces on Mount Rushmore. I have yet to find a person who would think that the faces, that the apparent design of the faces <laughs> on Mount Rushmore is being imposed by your own mind. Yeah, oh, you're uh, just imposing design on those, yeah. I, I mean, clearly, you know, if you're talking about marginal cases, like seeing faces in the clouds or something like that, well, okay. But when you get to things that clearly look designed, you know, uh, then, then that argument, I think, breaks down. And the thing about the machinery in the cell is that we're not talking about, you know, a snake looking like a stick or faces in the clouds. We're talking about Mount Rushmore and, and uh, things way beyond that. It, that is the 
the uh, apparent design is is really overwhelming. It's it's not marginal. Yeah, Dr. Behe, you stated that uh, random mutations are inadequate to fully explain complexity according to Darwin's theory, but there is a well-publicized experiment out there by Dr. Richard Lenski in which he has grown cultures of E. coli bacteria under close observation, and with the technology today, he was able to sequence the whole genomes of the E. coli that have been grown for the past 20 years. So they now have the exact sequences of the evolving cultures from the inception, they say, of 2,000 uh, generations. And as a result, they can know exactly which mutations appeared when. And from that information, they identify several mutations which they say are beneficial. Does this yeah. refute your theory in any way? Well, no, it's, it's actually wonderful, wonderful uh, experiments. And I've been following it closely for a long time, for you know, 15 years or so. And I think uh, Dr. Lansky, who is no intelligent design proponent, uh, nonetheless, I think his work is really great. This is exactly the sort of stuff that we need to do to decide how much Darwinian evolution can do. You know, we have to try experiments. We have to look to see what, you know, things like bacteria, because they grow fast and they're easy, easy to grow in the lab. What can they do uh, when they mutate and, and there is selective pressure on them? And actually, he's been, he's been growing them for 20 years, and it turns out uh, that's actually 50,000 generations of wow. these little bugs. And 50,000 generations in, in, in terms of a big animal like humans or something, that would be you know, a million years worth of evolution. And you can grow them in enormous numbers so that you could have lots of chances for beneficial mutations to arise. And in the early years of his experiment, he was very excited because soon after he started, he saw that beneficial mutations turned up and that some lucky cells were growing faster and replacing other cells that hadn't had these fortunate mutations. But in those early days, he was not able to track down what those mutations were. He just saw that the, some cells were growing faster. But science is, has improved a lot and technology has improved a lot. And as you mentioned, now it's feasible to be able to sequence the DNA of these organisms. And interestingly, what he found coincides very nicely with what I was just talking about with human changes in malaria and what I write about in The Edge of Evolution, and that's that the beneficial mutations he's tracked down were actually the breaking of genes. It turns out that some genes, if you break them in, in some conditions, that gives an advantage to an organism. And he found out that breaking one gene caused the organisms to no longer make a bacterial flagellum. And we talked about that earlier. It's this uh, complex uh, machine that helps a, a cell swim. But it turns out in the culture, the bacterial culture in his lab, he was stirring things. He was stirring the solution. They didn't need to swim. They were being stirred around. So if they turned off those genes, threw them away, they no longer would expend energy on making them and they could use their energy to reproduce more quickly and therefore outcompete their brother and sister uh, bacteria. And another 10 or so genes also, it turns out, were thrown away by the bacteria. There's a gene that makes a sugar called ribose, which is part of RNA. He saw that throwing that away gave bacteria a, a growth advantage of about 1 or 2%. And 1 or 2% doesn't sound like much, but it turns out that in 100 generations, if you've got a 1% growth advantage, you're going to overwhelm everybody else. Well, the bottom line, Dr. Behe, then, is that uh, this type of activity goes against 
Darwinian evolutionary theory, which holds that things have a tendency to build up and become more complex. Here we have just the opposite happening, things yeah. breaking down. That's right. Uh, that's right. It, it, it kind of both supports and uh, refutes Darwin's theory because it supports the idea that you can have random changes and some of them can be beneficial. And that's important to know because like in, in instances like antibiotic resistance or malaria resistance in humans, they can have important medical implications. Uh, but it goes against the kind of grand theory of Darwinism that such random changes in selection can build up complex machinery. It turns out it, it much more rapidly breaks down uh, complex machinery. So the subtitle of my book, The Edge of Evolution, is The Search for the Limits of Darwinism. There's no need for Darwinism to explain everything to be a good theory. Lots of theories in science explain a little piece of the world, and, and they're perfectly uh, helpful. Turns out that Darwin's theory has limits, so it's good where it can explain things, but it should not be taken as the grand uh, creation myth of our uh, age. You know, Dr. Behe, when it comes to mutations, often an illustration that uh, high schoolers are given is the Scrabble board illustration, that, you know, the genetic code, just changing a few things, it is possible to make random mutations like a Scrabble board. You know, you have cat, and if you just change one letter, B, you get bat. So you uh -huh. see, uh, change is very possible given time and, y you know, all these kinds of combinations. Sooner or later, you're going to get beneficial kinds of mutations. You've shown that it's much more complex than that in your book, haven't yeah. you? Yeah, that, that's right. And, and that's, you know, that's both a good and a bad example from, uh, from the textbooks that you were talking about. Yeah, you can change cat into bat or rat or, or something and get a different meaning and maybe it'd be helpful. But, you know, now instead of using three-letter words, let's use four-letter words. You know, let's say uh, use a hold, H-O-L-E. You can change it to the hail, H-A-L-E, and maybe some couple other things. But now let's try five-letter words. And it turns out as you the words become more complex, your ability to change them decreases rapidly. And if you start to string those words together into a sentence, now it turns out that changing from cat to bat might not make sense. Because if you have a sentence that says, the cat, oh, what do cats do? <laughs> they ate a rat. Yeah. Well, the cat ate a rat. Uh, the bat ate a rat, maybe. Uh, the cat purred and ate some meow mix. Yeah. <laughs> into exactly. the bat purred and ate some meow mix. Yeah. That gets exactly. a little more uh, far out as yeah, we go. A little, little touchier. So, uh, and that's a great example of, of the point that's, uh, that my book's trying to make. Those random changes can be fine when you're talking about simple systems, uh, but the more complex uh, it gets, the, the less useful that sort of thing is. Well, you know, Dr. Behe, in our final moments here together, I think uh, your book is a very significant book and one that ought to be read by every high school or college student in the sciences. But what future do you see for intelligent design? You guys are meeting a lot of resistance here in the academic and public arena. Yeah, uh, that's true. Uh, but that's just political resistance. And <laughs> so I'm not a politician. I'm a scientist. And uh, so I, I don't know about, you know, the short term. Short term depends a lot on personalities and politics. But in the long term, it's the data that will determine things. And so in the long term, the, the outlook for intelligent design is, is very, very bright, simply because 
you know, that's where the data's heading. It's not, not because of anything I've said or anybody else has said about it. It's just that unexpectedly, science has discovered that the very foundation of life is enormously elegant and complex. And, you know, you have a lot of public support, too. I mean, I think most people, most laymen, uh, over perhaps 60 percent, just don't really swallow Darwinian evolution hook, line, and sinker. So uh, you're, you're talking about a small scientific community and media community that is going to be more resistant and, and give you a hard time than the general public who's a lot more open to this. Yeah, yes, I, I think you're exactly right, that that the public at, at large that doesn't have an axe to grind, they simply don't buy Darwinism, and they see why intelligent design is plausible. Because, you know, anybody who looks at a bird flying or a... Uh, a fish swimming or something and, and sees how elegant it is, it is and, and how intricately it works, knows the point and, and gets it. Well, you've been listening to our interview with Dr. Michael Behe, professor of biological sciences at Lehigh University and author of a very significant book that uh, anyone in the sciences need to read, Darwin's Black Box, and the author of a recent outstanding book, The Edge of Evolution, that we want all of you to read as well. So, Dr. Behe, thanks for being with us this week. Sure, thanks for having me on. Well, thank you so much for joining us for Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zuckerman. It's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and intellectually considers the claims of Christ in an honest and loving way. And we'd like to ask you to join us. Please support us with your tax-deductible financial gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddha Read Pat's articles and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus. It's all at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zucker.